you knew you were in the final week of your life. Maybe you would reminisce over some fond memories that you had with one another or relive some of the adventures that you had together. And while I don't know what memories you would share or what adventures you might relive, I can have a pretty good guess and believe this to be true, that if you knew you were at the end, you would be sure to share your heart. Why do I share that? Well, as we lead up to Easter over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be spending time in the Gospel of John. So the disciple, the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the fourth Gospel, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are seen as the synoptic Gospels. John's Gospel comes in a little bit different, kind of fills in the gaps, so to speak. And he writes in a way that has a very specified purpose. He doesn't leave us to wonder or guess what his purpose is. He actually says that in the Gospel of John, specifically in John 20, 30, and 31. He says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. So in other words, he's saying, hey, look, I could have filled up all kinds of pages with what Jesus did. He said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so the reason for the book, the whole reason for that fourth gospel is that people would believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he is also Savior and that believing in the name of Jesus, believing in the person of Jesus is what leads you to eternal life for forever and abundant life for right now. And so there is more dialogue in the gospel of John uh, than we see in the other gospels. And we see him sharing his heart. And here's actually the breakdown for those that like the breakdown of books. It's kind of described this way that you have chapter one that's seen as the prologue. And it starts off in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, and it's a reference back to Genesis 1, that Jesus was creator and that he is the logos or the purpose of life. And so this great picture that he came down, word became flesh, full of grace and truth. And then we have two big sections here. Chapters 2 through 12 are seen as the book of signs. And we see in here, over the course of this book, we see seven miracles, seven stories, seven incredible, powerful stories about the miracles of Jesus. And we start to see this dialogue coming through. And the Gospel of John also has seven I am statements. Like, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we have these great pictures of dialogue. Well, then in John chapter 13, which is where we're going to pick things up today, things start to turn. And now, really, the rest of the book, John 13 through 21, is seen as the book of glory. And, what's, and then it, it ends with another epilogue and really a setup for the beginning of the church and the empowerment of his disciples. Now, why is this important? Well, we're going to focus in a chapter a week. Right? We can't cover everything in the chapter because that would, I mean, you could spend years in that. But we're going to just highlight a few key passages of each chapter each week. And we're going to focus in on John chapter 13 through 17 that's known formally as the Upper Room Dialogue. Why are we spending time here? Well, it's fascinating that the 
disciple John, the apostle, who wrote with the purpose of demonstrating and showing people that Jesus was in fact Savior and the Son of God and that through believing in him you can have life. Through that lens, through that purpose, you can write about the scope of the life of Jesus. And here's what's crazy. He spends 25% of the book with one night, one conversation. Think about that for a moment. That the night before he is arrested, the the day before he is arrested, now it's not all literally in the upper room, there's a portion of that, but there in the upper room to the garden and in between, he's having conversation. And so a good percentage of the book, a fourth of the gospel of John that could have talked about the entirety of the life of Jesus is spent in one night, one conversation. Why? Why? I think that this conversation, number one, shares the heart of Jesus. It shares the heart of Jesus. And number two, understanding this conversation along with Easter itself, the death on a cross, burial and resurrection. Though when you put those two together, it completely changed the lives of the disciples, and I believe it can completely change your life and mine. Because if you want to know somebody, you want to know their heart. And so let's jump into it. Again, if, if the writer decided to spend a good percentage of the book on this conversation, let's, let's dive into it and see what is the actual heart of Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 1. says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, pause, I'm going to pause here for a moment. Why? I want you to get the setup before we get to the punchline. So picture this. He's in the upper room. These first three verses tells us really four things. First, he knew his time was up. It said the hour was here. Earlier in the gospel and in the other gospels as well, there are oftentimes they were talking to Jesus and his response to his mother when he turned water into wine is that my time has not yet come. Or to the disciples, my time has not yet come. Or they went to arrest Jesus earlier because he was claiming to be God. And he says, no, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's like if you're cooking something in the oven, right? And, you, and, and, and the disciples or people are like peeking in like, okay, is it? No, okay, not time yet. Okay, and so it's like the metaphorical knife sticking in the cake. Okay, no, okay, it needs to cook a little longer. So like there's all throughout the gospel, you see this phrase, the hour has not come. The hour has not come. Well, here we hear the hour is here. It's time. His number has been called. It's go time. And so first, we see that he knows it's at the end. But then second, we see that he's in direct opposition. 
We're going to see later in this passage that Jesus knew the one that was going to betray him. And so he's sitting in a room. Um, If you've ever been betrayed by someone, maybe a little bit or maybe a lot of it, but imagine Jesus sitting in the room with Judas, who had been doing life, had seen the miracles, had heard the sermons, and was sitting there and didn't believe and not only didn't believe, was about to betray. And you see that in contrast with the love. That's the third thing. We see that Jesus had a genuine love for his disciples. And then lastly, it says that all power and authority has been given to him. Now put yourself in that situation for a moment. You know that the end is near. You know that the person who's about to betray you is right there. You know you have the ones you love also right there. And then you have all possible authority and power at your disposal. What would you choose to do? Wouldn't you choose to make an example out of Judas? Snap your fingers, Thanos style, like Marvel, like, nope, you're gone. No. Or would you think of some crazy experience where he would just call down angels of fire or stand up and proclaim the coming of the kingdom or, or go on the upper room and declare, this is mine. Everybody bow. Like what, like, what would you do if you knew you were at the end, you had people against you, but you had all power and authority to do whatever you wanted? Think about politics. What do people do in power? Think about our businesses. What do people do in power? How do relationships change when people get powerful positions? How often have we seen corruption, selfishness, greed? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and no matter what news channel you turn on, it's not a political statement here, you just see how we demonize the other side. Why? Because we don't trust power. Because when people get power, they use it for themselves. When people get power, they use it for greed and selfish gain. And if anybody, if anybody had reason to do this, it would be Jesus. Like, wouldn't you be sitting there knowing that Judas was going to betray you and partially think to yourself, seriously? Seriously, after everything I've done, all parents in the room have said this to their kids. Really? You know, that's mine. Really? Who's paying for it? <laughs> you're, you're going to choose that. You're going to talk back to me now. There's part of me that's like, how is Jesus not like, come on? <laughs> he knows it's the end. He knows there's oppression. He has all power. So what does he do? This is what blows my mind. And this is completely opposite of what we see in our world today. And I believe this is the beginning of why we see 
the importance of this dialogue. So keep that in mind. All power, all authority, oppression nearby, in the room. He knows it's the end. So what's he going to do? So Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense in our context today. But in those days, you typically didn't go to a school or a trade. You, you picked a mentor, or, you had a, you, or if you were a mentor, you had an apprentice, and you said, I want to be like that person, and then you followed them and did what they did. And so the role of the pupil was to serve the master. And so the, the, sir, the, the students, if you will, would serve the master in every which way because they wanted to become like the master. But the one thing they didn't do was the job of the lowest end of slaves. So it was seen as nice guest services and nice hospitality that when you would show up at a house or had a formal dinner, that a slave that was on property or the lowest of slave would actually wash the feet of those dining at the table because they were low tables, so they would recline, so there would be feet kind of close to the table. It's kind of gross, right? So, but the feet were gross. We have a dog, love our dog, but if you ever accidentally stepped in dog poop in the backyard, not notice, and all of a sudden you're like, what is that? And you start walking around, and you're like, Wait, oh, oh, it's me. <laughs> and you look down like, oh, okay. So imagine, okay, animals everywhere, kind of rural type community. Things going, you're, you're walking barefoot most of the time, maybe open-ended sandals. And you're not wearing closed-toed shoes. And, and so you've got dust everywhere, animal feces and, and everything, mud, whatever you you really pick up, and it's not like they're taking showers every day, so this is build up over the time where the last time you would wash, so it's, it's kind of cringeworthy. That's the point, is, is that they would come in, and these people who were seen as servants were like, I will serve, but I'm not doing that. That's for the lowest of the low. You know, I can't be bothered doing the job of a slave when I'm with our master. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus does. Think about this for a minute. Jesus, creator of the world, comes down to earth, takes on the limitations of humanity. That right there should be enough. But he doesn't stop there. He takes on the limitations of humanity, but then does the lowest of the low job. This hit me this week in prayer and preparation for this message. Out of what did Jesus create man? Dust. So the same God who created humanity out of dust was now washing the dust off of humanity's feet. So if you're the disciples, like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? 
Notice the basin and the towel and the water was there. Any of the other disciples could have stepped up and done that. But they were too good. They were too busy. But Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And now we pick up. Here, we're going to pick it up. Verse 6. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like he gets it. He's like, what are you doing? And Jesus answered him, what am I doing? You do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. And I, I love Peter I love because he is all in and all out all the time. This is the guy that, that walks on water and then falls back in. This is a guy that's going to deny Jesus three times. Later in, the, in this chapter, Jesus even predicts that. But then that same Peter is going to help start the church. So he is all over the map. He is that eager puppy that is very lovable but breaks stuff in the house. You know what I'm talking about? So Peter here goes, and he was like, Simon Peter said, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So he's like, no, 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 don't wash my feet. Peter, you need this. In that case, give me a full bath, Jesus. Like, I'm here, I'm ready. He's like, okay, Peter, calm down. Calm down, Peter. And he says there, he says to him in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he washed their feet, now pause there for a moment. So he knew that Judas was going to betray him. And what was his response? He washed his feet. The lowest of low job. That's crazy to me. He put on the outer garments, resumed his place, and said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so, so am I. If then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And he who ate the bread had lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now that before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. This is all happening, again, to show you that I am God. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And he goes on and, and he points out, he dips the bread and hands it to Judas and say, basically, do what you need to do. And Judas leaves the room. And then we come a little bit later here in verse 31. He says, and when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man, that's a, that's a term used to denote a savior. When the son of man glorified and the God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's saying, I'm about to die. I'm about to leave. And knowing that he's about to leave, he's going to share his heart. What is his heart? These next two verses have shaped the church for 2,000 years. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So on the surface, he gives them a physical demonstration to, to, to really preach a spiritual reality to them. And this washing symbolizes really a cleansing that needs to happen. So it's not just forgiveness, but cleansing. This means that some of us here in the room, we, we long for forgiveness. We want God to forgive us, but we forget that God doesn't just forgive. He also cleanses, which means made pure. So he cleanses the sins that have been committed against you and also the sins that you have committed. So you are made new. You are made clean. That he is the living water that washes and cleanses and purifies us to be made new. And so there's this spiritual reality and this incredible, powerful picture of service. And then he turns to them and says, love one another like I just did. And after he goes to the cross and actually lays his life down for them, they think back, wow. That when you receive power, your obligation is service, not success. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Don't seek a title. Instead, grab a towel. Don't seek a title. Instead, grab a towel. No, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to pursue dreams. God has given you a calling or a dream or ambition. So ambition itself is not wrong. But when we make our goal, that position, that title, instead of the blessing and the way of love and service to others, we've missed the point. Earlier in the Gospels, when they were having a dinner, the disciples having a dinner, a similar dinner with Jesus, instead of looking to serve, they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, which one's the greatest? We have been ranking things from the beginning of time. My favorite time of year, March Madness, is right around the corner. And you want to know where you rank or football, basketball, whatever sport. I talk about baseball, but they're not playing. Um, anyway, like the, we, we love to rank things, or we rank movies, or businesses, or it doesn't matter. We, we love to rank things. We want to know that we are slightly better than that person. Why? Because we want the title. I'm not saying it's wrong to want to win. What I want you to understand is that winning looks very differently in the Bible. Is that your call 
in your position is not for you, but for others. Now, notice the different responses of of Peter and Judas. Judas just quietly received it. Just as he quietly received everything in Jesus' ministry. You don't really hear much about Judas in the Gospels. We hear a lot about Peter. And Peter made a lot of mistakes, but he was open about it. And when, as soon as he learned something, he was like, yeah, bring it on. Okay, I need my feet clean. Jesus, I need everything clean. Come on. No, not quite, Peter. Okay, whatever it is, I'm in. Right? He said, actually, you're going to betray me. No, I won't. Okay, later, yes, he will. Okay, but I'm back. Okay, like he's all over the map. But there's a sincerity there. Whereas Judas went to church, sang the songs, did the things, but never was cl- cleansed. Never received him. And so betrayed him for a couple hundred bucks. I'd rather be like Peter and make big mistakes, but then receive that forgiveness and say, God, I'm here. Because we all need cleansing, but then also, then he says to go and do likewise. Now, I've been a part of some ceremonies where we've washed feet and it's been pretty powerful and cool, but... It might be awkward at your workplace, like if you're like at the reception when they walk in on Monday and you're like, come here, Carl, and, uh, and you say like, you don't need to necessarily freak him out, so, so take the principle there, okay? How can you use your power and position to serve others, not yourself? Because this theme, this word, starts to run through every single thing that Jesus does from that point on. And even, not even just every, from everything moving forward, but also if you look backward, John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved. So you show your love through your actions. Let me give you a couple examples just as we continue in this dialogue. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. What was the commandment? He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. If you love me, you will love others. That's what he's saying. John 14, 21, again, same dialogue. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be beloved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And verse 23 and 24, It says in there that Jesus answered him that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he, we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Very next chapter, John 15, verse nine, it says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love if you keep my commandments You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment that you love one another. And then in verse 17 of chapter 15, it says, These things I command you. Why? So that you will love one another. Over and over and over and over again, it talks about how we treat people as a direct reflection of how we view God. That this is how the world will know. Because this is not how the world operates. 
Paul writes to the Galatians, and he's mad at the Galatians, and they're doing a bunch of stuff wrong. They, they keep thinking it's about works and that you have to earn your salvation through these crazy things. He's like, no, no, no. He said, it's for freedom's sake. Christ died to set you free. And then in Galatians 5.13, it says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Don't seek a title. Instead, grab a towel. Right after staff meeting uh, this week on Tuesday, that a gentleman came in and needed some help. And uh, I won't go into details just for the sake of his privacy, but it's one of those things I wasn't planning on doing. Uh, it wasn't necessarily convenient. It took a couple hours, um, but ended up taking the day trying to help, help a person. And I found myself like, oh, man, my schedule, oh, like now it's changing everything, right? You, you ever done that? Like you do something nice, but you like complain during the process to yourself? Like, here you go. But inside you're like, ah, oh, why couldn't you need help in my free time? You know? And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second. I'm preaching on serving people when it's inconvenient. Okay, God, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> and I had to remind myself, this is the point, is to serve. And if God's going to bring up personal illustrations every time I preach on a topic, next week we're talking about how to deal with surprising riches. No, just... I'm ready for that. Okay, no. <laughs> no, I found myself uh, driving back home just kind of laughing, just like, like, how, like, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, just preparing a message about serving one another, and I'm internally grumbling when I had to do that. Like, all right, I get it, Peter. <laughs> I get it. We forget so quickly. But yet, how incredible is it that we have the words of Jesus in his final days with all power that he said, I love you. Let me show you. On your way out today, you're going to receive a towel. Now, the towel Jesus used was probably big enough to wrap around himself. That would have been kind of obnoxious to give that out to everyone. But we're going to give you a towel on your way out the door, and, and I want you to place this somewhere in your home, maybe in the car, in the dash, or in the house, in the kitchen, or a bathroom, or dresser, anywhere. You can just roll it up or lay it out, whatever you want to do. And this week, I want you, when you see this, let it be a reminder not to seek a title, but to grab a towel. And ask God, God, how can I serve the people of my life today? And in turn, serve you today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for just giving us the example of humble love and sacrificial service. That ultimately you would lay your life down. And God, it's there in the upper room after this action 
of washing the feet, this humble service that they took communion as a picture of, of not only Passover, but what you were about to do on the cross. And so, God, as we go into this time of communion, I pray that we can reflect. And God, is there sin we need to confess? Peter didn't need to be fully cleaned, but he still needed his feet washed. Some of us, that's what we need, is that we have to confess our sins and to be cleansed, and not just forgiven, but cleansed and made new. And God, it's my prayer that we can be like Peter, and even in our mistakes, at the end of the day, receive that cleansing and forgiveness, and to not be like Judas and to choose selfishness and pride and power instead of rejecting Jesus when he was so close. Let us love like you. Let us serve as you served. May the world know that we are your disciples based on how we treat and love one another. In your son's name we pray. Amen.